John chapter 6. It is a massive chapter. From the bulletin to summarize what live eternally means, the theme of John's gospel. John writes his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This life is zoe in Greek. That's Z-O-E. It differs from bios life, which is where we get biological life. Zoe life is God's life. It is the kind of life that lives forever. It never decays. Though originally assumed to be something attainable only in heaven, John dares us to find that life in Jesus today. This is the life God wants us to live right now. A piece of himself within us, a bit of heaven on earth before Jesus returns. Eternal life is not merely life after death, as great as that is, but it's also life before death. And so the Christian gets to live before he dies and live after he dies. What a deal. John's gospel for us here. So recall, he opens up the gospel with in the beginning was the word in the beginning, intentionally harping back to Genesis chapter one. This is the new creation. The old creation is rotting away, but God is coming to launch. He's sending his son to launch the new creation in which Zoe life is reigning and ruling. And seven signs John records to show us the way to that new creation. So we have seen a few of them. We're going to see numbers four and five tonight. And with all of that, I'm going to read to you guys this very long passage in one flow. It takes 10 minutes. At least it did in my office. 10 minutes to read out loud. (laughs) 10 minutes. Your attention span is about that. So some of you, some of you. So (laughs) mine is, okay. It was just, yeah. Um, So... What I want, the reason also, though, is that I want you guys to see this passage flows, okay? There's, there's, there's connections across the narrative that I want to see you guys connect. So uh, there's going to be four scenes. The first is a scene of bread. It's a miracle. Jesus feeds 5,000. The second is a scene of a storm. It's on the sea. It's with a boat. The disciples are freaking out. Jesus walks on water. The third is about bread again, except this time it's a sermon about bread. It's a message. Jesus says that he's the bread of life. And then the fourth scene is another storm, although it's not through weather. It's the reactions of the disciples to the message Jesus gave. So we're going to see bread, then we're going to see a storm, we're going to see bread again, and then a storm again. Capiche? Capiche? Okay. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that the crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii 
Or in other words, a few thousand dollars would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, said to Jesus, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, literally, I am. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi or teacher, when did you come here? Or how did you come here without a boat? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal Zoe, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you may believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives Zoe to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal Zoe. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. So everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, <clears throat> me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal Zoe. I am the bread of Zoe. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the Zoe of the world is my flesh. Well, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no Zoe in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal Zoe, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Well, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. And that's not Zoe, by the way. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and Zoe. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal Zoe, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray Jesus. 71 verses. Golly, John, call it quits and put a chapter somewhere else. <laughs> nah. The chapter creators, which is not original to scripture, it was added some time down the road for people like us who like to study and read the scriptures. Uh, they did a good job at keeping this as one unit. Uh, as you can see, the bread scenarios connect with a little storm in the middle and then this stormy reaction at the end. You can't help but feel that this is uh, the telling of Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness all over again. There's grumbling, there's disbelief, and there's manna coming down from heaven. And Jesus is feeding the crowds, the multitudes, the hungry multitudes with this manna. He's, he, you know, he is in a wilderness place. He's not in a city at all. Uh, and then, of course, there are the direct intentional allusions to Moses in the wilderness. And above all that, it does say that this was the feast of uh, the Passover in verse 4. So uh, it's very clear here that, theologically speaking here, that Jesus to the Jewish people is the new Moses. He's leading them from bondage, old creation, to the new creation, the promised land, Zoe life. He's leading them there. The signs are pointing that way. And we, too, uh, can look at Jesus in that way. We have our exodus, and we're following him into the new life. So uh, you can't help but get that sense as Jesus is giving them instruction, and they're grumbling, and there's manna, and all this Stuff is going on. And plus, his walking on water, uh, because you wouldn't necessarily think this, but because of the context of Israel's wilderness wanderings, it, it, it perhaps alludes to Moses parting the Red Sea, making a way through water. Well, here, Jesus doesn't need to part it. That's, that's wussy stuff. He can just walk on it. So, you know, it's just one-upping Moses a little bit. 
<laughs> However, with that said, uh, it's overlooked unless you think about it. Uh, the Jews actually are taking a stab at Jesus here. They saw him turn the, the few loaves and fish into plenty for the people. And you would, you know, they were appreciative of that. In fact, they wanted to make him king. Oh, that's it. Bread's going to heal our problems. And we want a president that can, you know, multiply loaves and put money in our wallets. You know, that's what we want. Uh, they wanted that too. But they actually challenged Jesus because he's saying some challenging things to them. And it says in verse 31, well, in verse 30, they remember they say, okay, uh, what sign do you give so that we can trust you? You told us to believe in you. How should we trust you? Give us a sign as if the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't enough. But to them, it wasn't. Notice what they say next in 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, right? So, that wasn't just a comparison. It was more than a comparison to what Jesus did. It was a Moses is better than you, Jesus, because you fed 5,000 for one afternoon plus women and children. So people suspect it's probably 20,000. But Moses fed thousands upon thousands upon thousands every day for 40 years. So, Jesus, when you can do something like that, then we will trust you. So it, it, at first it just looked like a little comparison, but it's actually a little jab, like you're not quite good enough. So don't think you're all that yet. Anyways. So when we open chapter six, we have that reference to the Passover, which is actually continuing a theme that started in chapter five. In chapter five, and you can of course get a CD if you weren't able to make it because of the holiday. In chapter five, Jesus addresses the Sabbath. And how he is replacing that Sabbath. The Sabbath now happens in him. In chapter 6, the feast of Passover. We see that Jesus is now the feast of Passover. We aren't celebrating our leaving Egypt. We're celebrating our leaving the old creation, Bios life, and going to Zoe life, the new creation. So he is now our Passover. There's a theme in John starting in chapter 5 and now up through chapter 10. In which Jesus is announcing that the holidays of Israel are finding their fulfillment in him. He is the one they come to now. So we're going to see that theme continue on as we go through to chapter 10. Um, now, let's look at the miracle of bread. A few comments on that. The feeding of the 5,000. So this is sign number four. Remember, there's seven signs in John's gospel. This is the fourth. We saw first he turned water to wine. Second, he healed uh, a man's son from long, long range fire, right? From long distance. He just said, your son's healed. Never even saw him, but he, the, 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 he was healed. Uh, the third sign is when we saw the invalid made to walk when Jesus said, simply take up your bed and walk. And so now we're at number four where he feeds the 5,000. In this little story, which, by the way, apart from the resurrection, is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. This little episode shows us the social ministry of Jesus. That he had a great concern, yes, for getting people to believe in him and, and getting them to return to the Father, God. But he also had a great social concern for the physical body. That there were hungry stomachs in those who were following him. And he wanted hungry stomachs addressed. 
So we see a unique aspect of Jesus because we often can get very into the whole spiritual side of Jesus where we come and we have our private little devotional worship time with him and we want him to feed our souls with bread and we have all that going on and it's easy and very convenient to make Jesus that kind of a bread giver and forget completely that there are actually physical bodies that need physical bread. And Jesus doesn't overlook that. He isn't so high and mighty to say, well, if you just believe in me, you wouldn't really need my, that kind of bread. Like, we're below, like, you guys are below that. Like, that's, that's not his heart at all. He takes care of the physical body of human beings. God became a physical human being. That should tell us enough about how much he cares about the needs of humans. And so Jesus was for helping people in their social situations. Today, a lot of churches will throw the word around uh, social justice. And that's just going and trying to make the social living environments of people better. Blessing people. That's a good thing. That isn't a wrong thing. However, some people go to the far extreme where they think the church is all about just go and make the world a better place as if that's all there is to life. Like there isn't God's work in that. And yeah, that might be too extreme. But the other extreme of just having private heart to heart time with God is probably not what the church is about either. So we see that Jesus does have a social concern for people and he feeds them. So it says that, you know, there's an interesting question. Hey, Philip, how are you going to pay for all this? You know, and Philip's like, oh, my gosh, Jesus, I don't know. You figure it out. But Jesus knows what he's going to do the whole time. And we see that interesting comment in verse uh, 10. Now there was much grass in the place. We see right off the bat, there's enough room for the hungry people. Plenty of room for plenty of hungry people. The question was, are we willing to make the sacrifice or do what we need to do to feed them? But there's plenty of space. Is there enough space in our hearts for there to be hungry people in our lives? Do we have room for them? And do we have the concern to say, hey, Jesus gave you bread. I want to give you bread. So... Interestingly, also, is that you, it, I don't know if you caught it when we're reading it, but um, this, the, the miracle doesn't really show itself until the very end. You almost don't realize a miracle's happening until Jesus says, collect the leftovers. And then they say there's 12 baskets of leftovers. Then you're like, whoa, wait a minute. See, at first it's just Jesus is like, okay, let's take this boy's lunch. And he just starts passing it out. You're like, well, they must be getting little crumbs. You know, you're just thinking like, I'd... but then all of a sudden, like, whoa, there was that many left. What happened? And this spoke to me of, of how miracles happen in our lives. There's, they're often so under the radar. We rarely go about anticipating one, let alone are we very unusually aware of them when they happen. It's usually after the fact that we look back and say, whoa, how did that happen? But we're usually not anticipating or not aware. And so we can't discredit what God wants to do just because <laughs> of our lack of foresight. We just have a retrospective perspective. Well, that was redundant. Well, you know. All right. So now we get to verse 16. When the evening came, the disciples, okay, so they're going, where did Jesus go, right? The crowds are wanting to make him king. He feeds us, and Jesus slips out. He's like, that's not what I'm about. So he hides, and the disciples are realizing it's getting dark. we got to get back to the other side of the lake where home is. Where did Jesus go? Like, I don't, let's leave him. <laughs> they didn't quite have the no man left behind mentality yet, I guess. <laughs> so they get in the boats, and they go. And so that's uh, where John says, like, Jesus had not yet come to them, probably because when he's writing this by the 90s, everybody knew 
this story. So he's just letting him know, like, just so you guys know, Jesus wasn't with them. Like, and so they're terrified because the storm's coming. And then if that wasn't enough, Jesus is walking on water and he's coming up to them. And that you can just imagine like, somebody's walking on the water over there and he's coming closer. Oh, good Lord. And they're panicking and they're holding the oars tighter. Go faster, Peter. I've been rowing for three miles. It's your turn, John. And so they're, you know, you could just see the scene and the panic in there. And Philip's bailing water. Say, I don't see anything. And he's like drenched from head to foot, right? So it's just a chaotic scene. It's stormy. It's confusing. It's n- <laughs> and then there's Jesus. And this is the fifth sign, sign number five. He's walking on water. This is an amazing display of dominion over the created order. That the old creation is nothing for someone from and building the new creation. He has complete mastery over that. And he trods on it. He just walks on it. So the disciples can learn, look, the sign points to with the Zoe life of Jesus living in us, we don't have to fear the storms of the present creation because Jesus just walks right over them. He's the Lord. He's the master. And nothing is too hard for him. Then we come into verse 22 and we come back to bread. And of course, so this crowd that ate the bread now comes to Jesus and he accuses them. You're coming to me because I'm a problem solver. Ouch. (laughs) How often is that the way we treat Jesus? Oh, (laughs) hi, God. I haven't talked to you for a while. Yes, I'm in trouble again. (laughs) You know, some people do seek Jesus because he's a problem solver. Hey, that's not wrong. He is a good problem solver, but he's more than a problem solver. And if all we ever do is look to Jesus to solve problems, we're going to live in a worldview that has an unending cycle of problem, solution, problem, solution, problem, solution. And like Israel in the wilderness, we're just going to keep spinning our tires round and round. Jesus saying, done with the problem solution thing. Let's go in a linear direction. I'm taking you somewhere. It's a new creation, a new kind of living. I'm taking you there. Follow me. Um, So he's not just a problem solver problem solution or in other words hunger food hunger food you know there's there's more to jesus than that so he he calls them out on that and so relations are a little tense to begin with (laughs) and so jesus launches into three sermonettes the first is an evangelical sermonette i am the bread of life this is the work of god believe in uh him whom he has sent that's his message to them is believe And that's still the message today. Believe. He wasn't asking them to achieve anything. He was asking them to receive himself as we receive bread into our bodies. See, sometimes we still have the mentality that, oh, believe means I need to achieve God's gift for me. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, when I say believe, just receive like you receive bread. And sometimes you make your own bread. That's fine. That's kind of obviously ruin the analogy. But most of us don't make our own bread. And that's exactly, we just receive it. You know, it's not this big ordeal of got to make it happen. So Jesus just wants them to receive himself. Um, That's when they really point out that Jesus isn't as good as Moses. Oh, you want us to receive you? Well, (laughs) beat Moses. Because obviously they still read his law, right? They're receiving Moses every day. Then he launches into, in verse 41, he launches into the second sermonette, um, the ecumenical sermonette, if you will. That word scares some people. So just like all people sermonette. Like Jesus 
is for all people. That's what he tells them. So in verse 41 on to verse 51 is where he does that. He says things like, uh, I'm giving myself, I'm the bread for the world. I'm for the world. I'm not just for the Jews. I'm not just for people of a certain denomination. I'm for the world. They just, you just simply need to believe and receive me. I'm offering myself. Now you must absorb me. So I'm for, this is for everyone and Moses, in other words, was limited in that spot, right? He gave you guys past tense, uh, common bread to just the Israelites. But I am giving my father's heavenly bread, present tense right now, to the world. So Jesus said, okay, you, wanna, you want me to show you that I'm better than Moses? Boom. Present tense. I mean, Moses is dead. So are his followers. <laughs> Present tense, better bread, and it's for more people. That, by the way, isn't actually in that sermonette. It led up to it. If you want to look at that, that's in verse 32. It's his response. And you can see how he intentionally contrasts that. Um, but in verse 44, part of this, everyone, I'm the bread for everyone. He does sound a little bit limiting here. Verse 44 says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So it sounds great. Just believe in me. And then he says, but you can't really come to me unless God brings you to me. So now, you know, you're throwing up all kinds of questions like, okay, wait a minute. So was my salvation predestined by God or is it only God who can make it happen? And if other people aren't believing, does it mean that God hasn't like turned the light on for them yet? And it will never turn on until God does it for them. Or is this like, what does it say about my choice? What does it say about my wanting to come to Jesus? And I think that we're reading this too simply. I think that what John is communicating, or Jesus, through John's pen, is communicating in verse 44 simply, unless you already know the Father, you're not going to come to me. Unless you already know the Father, you won't come to me, because obviously I and the Father are one. I came from him. So if you're not coming to me, it's because the Father isn't sending you because you don't even know the Father. That's the accusation. It's so much deeper. It's saying, it's not just saying wait around until God like does the thing for you. It's saying, if you aren't receiving me, like most of this audience, it's because you simply don't know God. Then he goes in verse 52 to the Eucharistic sermonette. That's a fancy Latin phrase for communion. It means Thanksgiving. And so, of course, it, it had to work, right? Evangelical, ecumenical, Eucharistic. They're all E's. So I robbed it from a commentary, just so you know. <laughs> so that's why. Uh, Eucharistic sermonette. So this is the Lord's Supper. But this is where it freaks us out and where the disciples that are listening, it's like, okay, done with him, this guy. So he's into cannibalism, it seems. And he tells them, unless, very strongly worded, right? At the very end of verse 51, he said, look, the life I give to the world is my flesh. I'm like, oh, uh, how can you say that? They say in verse 52. And then in verse 53, Jesus doesn't really back down and say, well, okay. See, I was kind of metaphorically saying, so don't take me too seriously. No, he then all of a sudden launches into going deeper into what he means by his flesh. And he says, not just my flesh, but my blood. And you have to, if you don't eat it, if you don't drink it, you have no part in me. You have no life in me. This is what you must, you must receive me in that way. So, um, 
<laughs> unless, verse uh, 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And he just keeps going and making it worse. And he's like, oh, wow, okay. So it not only sounds weird to us, but it would sound even weirder to a Jew who has all kinds of kosher eating rules particularly in which blood was not to be drunk at all. And that was very clear in the Old Testament because pagans did that. Blood was a big part of their whole religious rites and things. And so this is very, very, very troublesome. Often, well, yeah, so um, let me just make a couple comments here. So what he's probably doing, uh, of course, it is metaphorical. He is being intentionally difficult, as some background scholars have pointed out who read tons of rabbi literature. They pointed out that lots of rabbis intentionally made their messages hard to understand in order to weed out the masses from the true followers. So what we really see is people coming to a decision sped up in time. They may somewhere down the road said, yeah, this Jesus I don't really know. I thought I was into him for five years, but, you know, it just didn't work out. Or I got bored of that. Uh, He's just speeding up, like, decades of regression into minutes. So that suddenly we're going to find out who really does want Jesus to follow and who doesn't. Imagine that being said at the Harvest Crusade, some sort of offensive. (laughs) And so what we see at the end, of course, is that they all get up to come down to the altar call Jesus gives and they go out the exits. <laughs> so, you know, it felt successful for a minute. And then they, could you imagine? <laughs> Greg Laurie's like, wow, they're all coming down. No, they're all going to the parking lot. <laughs> um, so that's one thing he's doing is it's intentional. But, of course, we can see in here, he's talking about communion. He's talking about his body and his blood as they were broken. And, of course, anytime you separate blood from body, it means death. And so that's happening at the cross, his death, unless we realize that he has died for us and that we enter into that and go with him and die to the old creation and enter into the new creation. Unless that happens, we will not find Zoe life. It's all because of what he's done. And so one of the things we do here is every Sunday night we take communion Because we see this as a very important, vital reminder to our walk with Jesus, who he is, and that we need him constantly. But another reason for it is in case the teacher stinks that night, then at least the gospel is visible and tangible right there in the elements every week. So when all else fails, we have that, right? So that's not, well... It's not the reason we do communion, okay? It's just one of many reasons. Um, It's it's my parachute. Well, guys, I don't feel it tonight, so let's just take communion. (laughs) Uh, So um, here's one quote from my favorite commentator in, uh, in John. He says, The Lord's Supper is a repeated altar call to ongoing conversion, to fresh recommitments and entrustments of oneself to the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life. I liked that. Every time we take it, it's like an altar call. It's that fresh coming to him saying, yes, I want to follow you again. Even if it means my body and blood are going to be torn and spilt, I will do it again. Good thing to do weekly. Now, transubstantiation. 
is what some Christians see the communion as, that the bread and blood literally transforms, transubstantiation, into the physical body and blood of Jesus, although it just looks like a cracker and wine. But it, it literally is it. And uh, there have been some people that have relayed experiences that when they took their first communion, they, they literally felt like they were eating flesh and blood. Um, I've met somebody personally who said they had that experience. So that is a mystery. Usually Catholics believe in uh, that there's a literal, they're literally taking his body and blood. Uh, there's also symbolism, which is on the total other extreme. It's not literally his body and blood, but it's just simply symbolizing it. Like, yeah, his body and blood were over there on the cross, but we have crackers and juice to symbolize what had happened 2000 years ago in, in, in Jerusalem. And so, uh, that's another extreme where we completely strip the presence of Jesus from it. Cause it's just symbolic. Um, the middle ground would be consubstantiation which is simply saying that the body and blood of Jesus are present with the cracker and juice. So that there isn't just mere like, oh, crackers and juice, like we just kind of do this thing. And I kind of remember, oh yeah, thank you for the symbols of remembrance. Um, But that there is, in a very mysterious way, Jesus is with us when we do that. And we are, by faith, bringing him into our lives as we do that. So that is probably a middle-of-the-road way to look at it. So there you have that. Okay. Uh, so at the very end, we see the second storm. Everyone's like, what is this man's message too hard? 66, many of his disciples turned back. So we have a ton of them to now just 12. And even in that 12, Jesus admits one of you is going to betray me. So that's pretty pathetic. Um, that's what we often see. People love the works of Jesus. They love the mercy of Jesus. And we have a culture fascinated with that part of Jesus. But they don't like the words of Jesus or the message of Jesus. And it seems that the more Jesus talks, the less people like him. Anyways, um, what makes these 12 remain and not the rest? You'll have to stay with us for part two after these next two worship songs.